0: Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle enbies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history. Because history has never been as straight as you think. (laughs) Hey folks, I'm Lee, And I'm Gretchen. And uh, in this episode, we are following up with the Wild legacy and talking about Dolly Wilde, the lesbian niece of Oscar Wilde and noted bon vivant of the left-bank lesbian scene of Paris in the 1920s and 1930s. She is said to have had the brains and wit to match her uncle... But instead of writing plays and novels, she made her life itself into a work of art. And some other folks may say that she had the wit and wonder of her uncle and all the loserness of her father. Oh. We didn't talk a lot about Willie Wilde last time, <laughs> but boy, are we going to talk about him a lot now. Oh, Willie.
1: I think I first heard of her on Tumblr where someone had had like a post. Um, it was about Oscar Wilde, and then it had these series of photos. Of Dolly that was basically just like, oh, hey, she looked exactly like her uncle. And she was also really gay and also really witty. And I, <laughs> like, I think I re-blogged it and was like, Lee, we're going to have to do an episode on her, aren't we? Yeah, because, because she's great.
0: <laughs> like, while we were researching this, before we we had talked to anybody about doing this, too, our, like, shirt designer, V, randomly, like, came into my my Twitter DMs. It was like, Lee! have you heard about Oscar Wilde's obscenely lesbian niece? And I'm like, my friendo, And I just literally took a picture of the book that we were reading and (laughs) sent it to them. (laughs) Obscenely lesbian. Uh, That's a great description. Obscenely lesbian, right? It's fantastic. Uh, So yeah, so this is basically going to be a follow-up-ish in that, like, there's a lot of Oscar Wilde in it, but Dolly is... Very clearly her own Mm -hmm. person. So we're really excited to get into it. There will be some content warnings, as usual. There's going to be some discussion about some pretty heavy substance abuse, suicide, depression, potential child abuse. I mean, definitely there's some neglect there, but... Yeah.
1: And this is going to be a people focused episode. So we're going to start with a discussion of the social and historical context of the time period. That'll be pretty brief this time because we talked a lot about Oscar Wilde last time and we have discussed, uh, certain aspects of this time period before. Then we will dive into their biography and move on to why we think they're gay. And end the podcast as always with how gay were they? Our personal ranking for how likely it is that they weren't straight, and we're just gonna go ahead and tell you that
0: this is a big one. This is there's no heterosexuality to be found here. Nope. At just all. like I think, literally the the only piece of heterosexuality in any of this is the fact that like Mina Loy was around and was like a token heterosexual in the group. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah,
1: this is just like the life and loves of Dolly Wilde, and all of the loves that they had that were each other, Yeah, and oh man.
0: It's an Ouroboros of gay, (laughs) friends. (gasps) Oh my gosh, I love that. But before we get into that, we do have an exciting announcement. We've been talking for a very long time about cool shirts that we have coming for you, and now they are out! They are on our store, just in time for the holidays, so... Get your friends, get yourself some cool geographic queer's gear. Yes. Um, these designs are excited. so lovely.
1: They did such a great job. I've been so excited to share these with the world because they're just they're just beautiful. They're beautiful. Yes.
0: So please go out and buy your loved ones, which includes yourself, a t-shirt or a tank top. This is ocean lesbian, land gay, or coastal bisexual. I love yes. Gretchen.
1: Yes, I love my coastal bisexual shirt. It's one of my favorite. And they're so soft and comfortable. And I'm not just saying that because we sell them. It's very soft. I'm super sensitive to, like, scratchy, itchy, stiff things. So if you are enjoying the softness of your shirt, it's it's because I love you, but also because <laughs> I selfishly did not want to be uncomfortable wearing shirts for my own podcast. So
0: <laughs> Yeah, we definitely were like, hmm, I like this color and want to wear this yes color and this style of shirt yeah so
1: hopefully you all like them too
0: (laughs) shall we dive right into the uh, to the
1: ouroboros of gay
0: to the ouroboros of gay (laughs) how do you dive into something that just eats itself where like at what entrance is there an entrance point okay if we (laughs) stay here we're just never gonna leave and Uh, (laughs) it's probably gonna get
1: dirty real quick so let's move on Yeah.
0: So yeah, tiny little bit of social historical context, because like Gretchen said, we talked a lot about this too in our modernist episode, but just revisiting the fact that much like London, uh, Paris in the 1920s had homosexuality kind of in vogue. A little bit looser than England at the time, but much like everywhere else in Europe, people didn't really quite know exactly what to do with lesbians. But we had modernism, all the rage, and sexual experimentation was the new style. Our book that we're using as our primary source by Joan Schenker called Truly Wild notes that, quote, modern experiments in sexual styles were the speciality de la maison of Paris, and nothing was more modern or more ancient than homosexuality. And again, we're at the point where, like, homosexuality in Paris is more or less something you do and not yet something you were. But Natalie Barney's circle of friends that included Dolly Wilde and all of these folks really started creating that community and that identity around them. I just realized that when you said circle of friends, I was like,
1: oh, like an Ouroboros of gay. <laughs> should be our That should be our oh. new... Uh, I don't have a circle of queer friends. I have an Ouroboros of gay. Anyway, oh man, I've, guys, <laughs> just letting you know, it's been a couple of days. I think for both of us, so I think we're a little bit punchy, just because we kind of have to be. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a good, it's a good episode for yeah. it, though. There was also the advent of a, a youth culture at this time period not just in Paris but in a lot of other metropolitan areas like London and New York the first decade of the 20th century was really focused on individuality and the self Mm -hmm. as Joan Schenker mentions it consecrated itself to youth culture and to the sort of self indulgence which is usually explained away by the term self consciousness self mythologizing self aggrandizing and at the same time self satirizing Dedicated to performances in living rooms, gender role exchanges, usually these are things like elaborate costumes, enormous silly social games, and the enhancement of experience by chemical means, a.k.a. a lot of people doing a lot of drugs. It was basically, like, flapper equivalent of a bunch of hippie kids getting together and doing drugs in the 60s. Yeah. So, they called it modernism, and to us, it feels very modern, which is also, like, a, a theme that shows up throughout this truly wild book by Joan Shankar. Which, before we get into Dolly's biography, (laughs) we just wanted to make a little bit of a note on this, that it is a fantastic biography. It is actually one of the only complete pieces of information on Dolly. But I will say, like, reading it, there is a lot of editorializing at times. Sometimes the author can get a little bit into, this is exactly how it was because I imagine this is how it could have felt. So, just a grain of salt I wanted to put in there. We have a lot of different quotes and letters and writings from these people, but sometimes what we know of these people's lives are interpreted through personal interviews. So, not a huge amount of, like, ways to corroborate things. So, right, take with that what you will. I don't know if you had the same kind of experience while reading it. Sometimes I was like, okay, okay, but, like... You can't just say that it seems like. Yeah, it is one of those books where, like,
1: I want to recommend it, but with a lot of caveats. Like, I think it can be kind of difficult to follow the structure of it. But yeah, there's a lot of really good information. And she's not always entirely clear on, like, what is her perception and what is, like, fact.
0: Yeah, it's very, it's very narrative. Yes. Yeah, which, I will say, like, it's not a dry biography. No. Um, she gets into the fact that because of the nature of Dolly Wilde being somebody who is very elusive and hard to pin down and hard to categorize, it's kind of impossible to do that as a biographer. You kind of have to go into the world and go into kind of absorbing this persona and this... Right. And um,
1: what is really interesting is that because of that, we get a lot of impressions from what other people, unlike what dolly's circle of friends like thought and said about her which is really interesting because most biographies tend to focus on like the facts and so Mm -hmm. it's like a really interesting change of pace to have a biography that's primarily about like kind of other people's impressions and kind of piecing together who this person was based primarily on impressions from other people which is just like a very unique Mm -hmm. perspective to have when reading a biography
0: yeah it's it's more what what was this person like right more so than here are the vagaries of their years on Earth. Right. Yeah. Before we go into, like, and here's when this person was born and blah, 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 blah. Gretchen, do you want to, we put a, a quote in here. It's a longer quote, but it's from the beginning of the book that we we think really does well to encapsulate Dolly as this larger than life person. Sure, yeah.
1: This is, again, like we said, from Joan Shanker's biography, Truly Wild. She looked, said everyone who knew them both, remarkably like her Uncle Oscar. She had the same artfully posed, soft white hands, the same elongated face, and the same air of indolent melancholy, which Aristotle insisted was always the natural accompaniment of wit. She spoke remarkably like her uncle, too, or rather like a brilliantly female version of Oscar, for there was nothing parodically male about Oscar. Although she would occasionally dress up as her uncle in borrowed too-tight pants, a great flowing tie, and a famously ratty fur coat, she looked most like Oscar Wilde when she was dressed up as herself. "'A beautiful, dreamy-eyed, paradoxical woman, wonderfully stylish and intermittently unkempt, spiritually illuminated and clearly mondain, i.k.a. worldly. "'She stares out at us from her few significant photographs with a distinctly contemporary gaze, conscious of the camera, casual about her audience.' For 60 years, she was a delicious rumour, Oscar Wilde's enchanting niece Dorothy. Entitled, artistic, and carefully closeted circles in Paris and London and Hollywood, stories of the outrageous things Dorothy Earn Wilde said and did were passed around the canapes at a book launch, attracting people of taste and talent wherever she went. Dolly Wilde was almost, as her friend Janet Flanner wrote, like a character out of a book. Like someone one had become familiar with by reading rather than by knowing. Too literary in short to be believed.
0: All right, cool. That's the episode. Good work, everybody. There we go. That's all you need to know about her. (laughs) It's the shortest episode of History is Gay in... Ever? uh, Almost a year. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I can't believe it's been almost a year. That's crazy. Oh,
0: my God. It's been almost a year. That's crazy. Yeah, so that's that's a good starting point. So, she was born Dorothy Yearn-Wild on July eleventh, 1895, in London, just three months after her uncle Oscar's trial and imprisonment for gross indecency. And it's really important to note that when she was born, at this point, the entire Wilde family and name had been essentially disgraced in society. Her parents were Oscar Wilde's brother, Willie Wilde, and her mother was Sophia Lily Leese Wilde. Willie, who was Oscar's older brother, was the lead writer for the Daily Telegraph, And while many said he was as smart and full of wit as his brother, he simultaneously squandered his talent with his excessive alcoholism, temper, and laziness. When in New York, his motto was, quote, what America needs is a leisure class, and I am determined to introduce one. He, and this is kind of a theme that you'll end up seeing with Dolly as well, but folks in his life, basically asserted there were kind of these two versions of Willie at odds. Schenker notes, quote, There is the convivial, the generous, the extravagant Willie, the Willie with the soft Irish voice and the even softer heart, a man who was charming to children, gallant to the ladies, a brilliant conversationalist, and a highly respected journalist. The other Willie, the one who drank to insensibility, refused to support his family— sponged, as his brother Oscar said nastily, on everyone but himself, abused his spouses, yelled at and stamped his foot at his 72-year-old mother when she refused to give him money, was the version supported by most of Oscar's literary friends and reinforced, somewhat reluctantly, by Willie's own two wives. So, yeah, yeah, Lily,
1: Lily Lees Wilde, was born of Irish origin and was close to Oscar. Some actually say closer than she was to Willie himself. And after Willie died, which was soon after Dolly was born.
0: After Dolly was. Yep. Yep. She had a second marriage
1: to a man named Alexander Tishara de Matos, who was a translator. Mm -hmm. So Oscar and Lily, like I said, they had like a close relationship. She held relatively regular contact with Oscar, consistently writing to him even after his trial and imprisonment. In June of 1895, a month before Dolly was born, Lily wrote to the governor of Pentonville Prison, where Oscar was incarcerated, asking him to give Oscar my fondest love and to tell him, quote, how often I longed to see him. She even visited him at Wandsworth Prison in October of that year, and after Willie's death in 1900, she told Oscar of her plans for her second marriage. She wrote to Moore 80, Oscar's friend, Quote, Oscar, who I shall always have a great affection for, on account of his touching kindness to me.
0: Aww. yeah, the relationship is really sweet. Oscar even paid the fifty pound for Lily's lying in fee when Dolly oh. was born because Willie, being Willie, couldn't pay for it. And Schenker notes that this characteristic act of generosity was at once material and symbolic and it cast a long shadow over dolly's life so even though she never got an opportunity to meet oscar he had a large influence on her from her birth from the very act of taking care of her mother Mm -hmm. in what ways he could from behind prison bars when she was born can we say that willie Um, was being a dick (laughs) yes (laughs) yes <laughs> I, I i rather think we can it's an appropriate name it's very appropriate <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah and like i loved this little story that like years before dolly was born even before oscar's imprisonment when he was being run out of hotels by the de queensberry's people lily when she was seven months pregnant she actually provided him with some refuge and she would like bring him into the house and tell willie to leave and leave him alone oh. and He made such an impression on her that he insisted on, quote, shaking hands with Ellie" to emphasize the special sympathies he felt for her and her coming child. So there's this close relationship even before she comes into existence. And I just just, just really love that. She's like, come here, come here, come into my home. I will put you up. I will get rid of my lousy husband, so he can leave you alone for a couple of days. Which
1: is even more touching because both, like, before and after Dolly was born, like, the Willie and Lily... <laughs> Sorry. that's gonna be the Willie and Lily household. I know. Every
0: time, every time I wrote it. <laughs> oh, man.
1: The Willie and Lily wild household. Like, they were really poor after Oscar's incarceration. And Lily's relationship with Willie was uh, complicated, fraught. She wrote to Oscar after Willie's death... Quote, after forty, one loses some way in the power of being happy. At least I find it so. One has always sad memories of what Willie might have been instead of dying practically unknown and leaving his child to be supported by my sister. Oh.
0: Yeah. Yeesh. Yeah. So, yeah. Early on, they lived with Oscar and Willie's mother, Lady Jane Wilde, also known as Speranza. So this was Dolly's grandmother. And their situation only worsened with Oscar's conviction. And they were really getting the brunt of his complete fall from grace. They they must have really been feeling like they were suffering an undeserved punishment.
1: Right, because Wilde's wife and children changed their name. Like, went by, mm-hmm. was it her maiden name? Holly. Yep.
0: Yeah, yeah, Viv- yeah, Vivian Holland, Constance Holland, and Cyril Right, Holland, so the only living, which, like, oh,
1: wild family members were Willie and Lily and Dolly. So, yeah, yeah they would have exactly. faced the yeah, brunt they're... of the, like, shame to the wild name, which is bullshit. Mm-hmm. They had to deal with that.
0: Yeah, well, and Willie, because he was alcoholic and irresponsible, and, mm-hmm. <laughs> as Schenker notes, increasingly degenerate, he even ended up resorting to selling Oscar's belongings for, like, any money that he could get. He was just, like, purloining his coat and his all of his belongings and it was like man you can you be less shitty please right it's okay because he died soon so and there's really not a lot known
1: about dolly's young life because she just like refused to talk about her childhood like it's even hard to tell what dolly's relationship was like with her mother lily um because You know, Lily, while calling her my beloved daughter in her will, and saying, you know, telling Oscar that Dolly would have a fair share in the family brains, apparently, like, Dolly was shuffled in and out of the home in her infancy and first few years, and suffered abandonment and neglect, and so here we go, here's our first content warning for, you know, neglect and everything. So, March 14th, 1896, they left a 9-month-old Dolly alone in their new house and went and visited Kent because according to Lily, the baby was
0: sick. So that just makes you leave the baby, a 9-month-old baby alone? Oh mode? my gosh. Okay. Yep. Yeah. It was also noted that, you know, later, not not quite sure exactly how how far after this, but she was apparently put out to nurse and was only returned to the house at age three. So oh first couple of years, right? It was like, all right, let's, you know, let's let's go to my sister. Have you taken care of? Let's go to these places. So she was just kind of shuffled around to various family or people that they knew.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at age four, when Willie died, she was placed in a convent, possibly in England or even Ireland. And Lily wrote to Oscar that Dolly was well and happy and being supported by Lily's sisters who were paying Willie Lily and Lily's rent after Speranza's death. And apparently this convent was a country convent and was essentially the rough religious equivalent of a temporary foster home. So, yeah, she was basically sent away to be raised by strangers in a convent that was not a great place to live.
0: Yeah, and this, you know, Dolly's feelings of abandonment and, like, moving from place to place would follow her... Throughout her entire life. Mm -hmm. Um, One interesting thing I wanted to note is that there's, like, only one surviving photo of Dolly as a baby. And she's sitting on her mother's lap. And it's when she, as a baby, was really sick. So, Mm. you know, there's, like, like, that's, like, literally the only family photo that we have of her. There's also some... Question about what her relationship with her stepfather, Tishara, was. Shanker tend- asserts that he seemed to be impressed by Dolly and her intelligence, writing about her in his biography in later years that she, quote, had read all about Huxley and Darwin before she was 16, but she kind of takes the fact that Dolly was very, very silent on the subject of Tex and her mother and her own relationship with them to suggest that there could have been some sort of sexual abuse going on. But other than her like refusal or potential inability to speak on her childhood, there's nothing to support such a claim. She, you know, just kind of notes that, hey, this is a thing that's relatively common in children who have been abused. And, you know, don't talk about the child, but that that's, like, literally all there is. And so she doesn't even, she doesn't go so far as to, like, claim that anything happened, but she right. kind of brings that up. And that's kind of, like, one of my caveats with the book is that sometimes she'll kind of, like, slip, hey, these are my perceptions in, but that can confuse a narrative that can put a whole bunch of things out there. So it was worth noting, but also, like, probably not a lot
1: there. Right. I mean, yeah, there's, like, absolutely neglect and abandonment, but we can't really speculate as to how much... More or different or other forms of abuse may have been going on at the same time. Apparently the only story Dolly ever really told from her childhood was a kind of a disturbing anecdote she told to Bettina Burgery that when she was very young, she liked to take lumps of sugar, dip them in Lily's perfume and eat them.
0: Yeah. Uh yeah, Shanker called it like a, like an attempt to incorporate her mother like that Lily was very pretty and that was her way of like and this is also like first instance of like baby Lily intoxicating herself. Oh. I don't know,
1: like, oh, right, yeah. cuz yeah, there was probably
0: I mean, there was a lot of like alcoholism in her childhood too. I mean, like Willie was constantly fall down drunk speranza was you know like folks visiting the home always said that there there were like bottles of gin when i was just thinking what just kind of all around the house whether there would
1: have been alcohol in the perfume as like a
0: fixative
1: potentially Ooh, maybe um like it might have been the equivalent of like huffing paint like whatever weird thing that kids get into when they want to like you know, this was it was the
0: only thing she could yeah. get her hands on, and well, well, hey, if you happen to be a specialist in early 1900s <laughs> perfumery, right. get at us, tell us all the sorted details, right? Because now I'm like super <laughs> curious
1: about like was it was it like an attempt to like intoxicate herself in some manner, whether it be through like mm. alcohol or any of the other ingredients in the perfume that might have been like mind altering substances. I don't know, maybe perhaps just part of the mystery of Dolly. I guess, yep. <laughs> also makes for a weird story to tell people. Like, I used to eat perfume, like, sugar cubes dipped
0: perfume. <laughs> my mother's perfume. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah, if I met that kid on the playground, I may be just a little bit, like, um, Are you okay? Yeah. So, but more onto, onto some less depressing oh my childhood gosh. things and more onto Dolly is a crazy daredevil. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah.
1: So the next we know of Dolly, she's 19 years old and it's 1914 and she runs away to France to drive an ambulance during World War I and then lived in Paris for basically most of the rest of her life. This was sparked by her love of automobile driving and being a daredevil. Sami Sato? Yeah, this- can you say a Sami Sato? Like
0: Exactly. Like the this chapter of Doll of the biography starts with talking about how there was there was nothing else that gave Dolly the exhilaration like driving around like a daredevil, which by the way, she never had her own car. She always borrowed her friend's cars, and I was just sitting here, I think I literally wrote in the margins, just, like, can you say Asami Sato? Yep, yep. She liked, because I've seen her described as liking, like, fast
1: cars and adventurous women, and I'm like, you mean, like, Asami Sato, who liked to drive fast cars and was, like, in love
0: with the Avatar? yeah yeah so Shanker notes driving was a sensual experience for her. A speeding vehicle produced the same fine, high feeling of carelessness, the same obliterating rush of blood, the same as Dolly said Volupte as her emergency seduction,
1: which we'll get into because uh, that's that's such a great phrase emergency yeah. seduction.
0: Yeah, she also was a big fan of, like, sending very hurried and exclamatory telegrams, which is how she ran away from home. She literally left, she was like, bye, I'm going on an adventure. She left in such a rush that she only had time, or maybe just wanted to, because this was Dolly's style, sent a one-word telegram that was literally just all caps with an exclamation point, sailing to her mother. And she would continue to send these kind of dramatic telegrams all her life. This woman is the most extra, and I love her She's so extra, oh Um, my god. Yeah, and when she was in in Paris, when she joined, you know, became an ambulance driver, she specifically joined this, like, big group of Anglo-American women who became ambulance drivers, and they all share, like, they share an apartment. She had this apartment with, like, four other women drivers, and they were really close, and they, like, traveled together, and they did all this stuff, and it's just, it's... It just makes me really happy. (laughs) She's pretty great. So she apparently reveled in
1: attracting both men and women, but was primarily attracted to women. I think we only really know of her having, like, intimate relationships with women. Mm -hmm. And never married, despite being proposed to by several men.
0: She really loved, like, men being in love with her. But she was like, okay, but, like... I'm gonna go over here now. That makes me think of Virginia Woolf with her whole like. It really does. Men are really pretty, but why though? Yeah, men are really pretty, and I like it when they fawn over me. But But I don't. We're not gonna. I don't want to do anything.
1: I don't want to touch them. I just want them to (laughs) think I'm really pretty and like chase after me. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, I got like a very (laughs) similar vibe off of this. Like she just enjoys Mm -hmm. people wanting her. But she wants ladies. So she kind of, like, drifted through her 20s after the war, uh, lived in and out of suitcases and hotel suites, borrowed apartments and spare bedrooms. She hated what she called flat life, which is, like, apartment living. She hated being tied down. So her solution was to, like, be constantly on the move, even though this kind of, you know, fast-paced lifestyle did take a toll on her well-being. She, like, consistently bounced between England and Paris, Basically, like, she would just stay wherever someone would put her up in a bed. So she borrowed people's cars and houses and just never really owned anything and never had, like, a permanent residence or anything.
0: And was pretty determined to not leave behind any sort of record about these things. Kind of the closest thing to a family life and having a set place to land was with family of her longtime friend pamela honey harris which i just love that name like honey harris she was five years dolly's junior and dolly spent a lot of her time with this family she spent long happy hours at the harris family house at 10 catherine street dolly wrote writing in honey's romantic bedroom with lowered lights a dreaming fire and honey tucked up like a princess fast asleep Dolly adored honey, but there's nothing to suggest that they were ever anything more than absolutely the best of friends. This was very clearly a close but platonic relationship, which uh, that's something that I really love is that we're going to get a whole lot into, oh, man, all of the ladies that Dolly and all of these other ladies dated. It's a big Ouroboros of gay. But this is also just like this really wholesome friendship. Which is really great. And everyone in the entire Harris family loved Dolly. And much like everyone else in her life, talked about her all the time. (laughs) And the Harris homes she spent time in, there were several, uh, are kind of, like I said, the closest she got to achieving some sort of family life, she kind of at once seemed attracted to and yet constantly ran away from for the high life in Paris. And I say high life, like, metaphorically and also literally. Yeah, Dolly even appeared in one of Lady Cara Harris's, uh, who was Honey Harris's mother's films, called Treason's Bargain. And uh, Honey's parents even wanted them to be together and hoped that Honey and Dolly were lovers. But Honey was very sadly straight. Um, she was like, this is my favorite letter from Honey to Dolly, where she writes, We are longing to see you. Please change your dinner jacket for a frilly blouse on the boat. I am very anti-lesbian, having been slightly in love with a gentleman <laughs> farmer lately. AKA, like, I love you, Dolly, and would be a lesbian with you if I could. But gosh, I just love men so much. Also, change your jacket into something prettier. <laughs> like, could you not look like a dude? Could you not look like a giant lesbo I would for this boat dinner? I would. And I like that it's because, like,
1: I've been slightly in love with a gentleman farmer. So it's kind of like, can you not look like a lesbian? Because there's this dude I like, and, and maybe I would be uncomfortable with you dressing more like a dude. So can you look dress more like a woman?
0: Yeah, that's the best use of anti-lesbian I've ever seen. <laughs> it's, it's, like, not what you would think of. It's, it's very much just, like, anti-lesbian of, like, I'm fine, but I'm not about it. Yeah, but they like traveled together. They issued joint invitations to parties together. And later on in her life, Dolly actually spent a lot of her time recuperating from her various troubles and stressors in Paris while she was at the Harris homes. And fun fact, there are even more connections between Dolly and Oscar's life. The Harrises had actually been connected to Oscar as well. Honey Harris's paternal grandparents actually lived right next to Oscar and Constance Wilde and spoke with them daily hmm. when they were living there. Which, I mean, there's just even more connections that are coming down, down the pipeline. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so Dolly's mother uh, passed away in 1922 at the age of 62. And... This resulted in a small inheritance and the introduction of a pretty important person into Dolly's life, Tancred Berenius, which is like, the coolest name ever. So this was a guy who was an art historian and he was the executor of her inheritance. He was well-off and well-connected and he essentially took her under his wing. And he's actually ultimately the person who kind of introduced Dolly into this scene of social elites of the 1920s Paris salons. I mean, the fact that she had this like reputation as being part of the Wild family and that she was also full of wit did a fair amount, but he was kind of the one who brought her in and, you know, was like, oh, here, here's my friend of a friend, and have you met Dolly Wild yet? Schenker notes, Dolly then, in late 1922, was a drifting 27-year-old with a flat to drift back to. So this is, like, her only time of actually, she, like, got an apartment very shortly after her mother's death. And, like, that's, like, one of the only records, like, actual, like, records on paper mm-hmm. in, like, an official sense. Um, like, that and, like... You know, her, like, death certificate are, like, the only things. Um, She was parentless, she had a tiny income, and she had her mother's executor, the art historian, to help her with it.
1: Yeah. And throughout her life, she drank a lot. She was addicted to heroin, suffered some pretty intense depression. She actually went through several unsuccessful detox attempts. After one such attempt, she actually emerged from the home where she had been going to detox with a new addiction to sleeping pills, Peraldehyde, which was then available over-the-counter and was consistently both flaunting and trying to hide her vices depending on who she was with. She tended to be more outright about it while she was in Paris, while trying to hide her habits while she was in London with the Harrises. So she had this kind of consistent torn between two selves and two lives. According to Schenker, Dolly was all her life both a vividly social woman and a recluse in depressed or determined self-exile. Her twinned and mutually exclusive desires for, on the one hand, ballrooms bursting with beaded beauties, and two, a bookish life in a country bed, pursued her like yoked furies. Even extending to her own home life, she vacillated between country and city, sets of friends, sets of habits, even ways of thinking— she used drugs, as one does, to escape mental illness, telling her lover, Natalie Barney, that she had, quote, an understanding of things that is almost too knife-like in its inevitable suffering, unquote. She would frequently barricade herself in bedrooms and withdrew from the world, writing, When happiness is definitely out of sight, I shall retire like Emily Dickinson into just such a bedroom, the last refuge which is very fitting because Emily Dickinson was also queer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We'll get to her. <laughs>
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. She actually, there's also a really good quote about how somebody was trying to tell her like this isolation is killing you. And she had a really pithy quote saying like, ah, uh, yes, I do prove Pascal wrong. Don't I? <sighs> which is just very flippant. And I love yes.
1: it. Yes. <laughs> it's kind of the epitome of yeah. Dolly right there.
0: <laughs> yeah. So in terms of her attitude toward politics, Much like Oscar, Dolly was far more interested in art relationships and kind of personal quests rather than politics, though she did do some volunteer work during World War II helping Polish refugees. She found a lot of kinship with the refugee narrative, considering, like, her adrift childhood. Schenker notes that her decision to run off in Paris in 1914 probably wouldn't have had anything to do with politics, that the summit of her worldview was that you should look after your friends and your friends should look after you, and... Often her friends had to look after her when she was drugging herself. Mm-hmm. So she she says that she was basically much more likely to follow a friend or a lover to war than a flag. All of her loyalties in politics were, in Dolly's own words, purely personal. Did you really think I'd work myself into a fever over England's downfall? Distressing though it is to think that the balance of culture in the world is on the decline. National disaster spells personal ruin. That is all. You bitch, you are so like Oscar. Oh my gosh. Yep. (laughs) It's, they just,
1: yeah. Yep. Yeah. But she did have this, like, intoxicating personality and tended to, like, she ran in really smart circles. Like, despite being Mm -hmm. kind of so adrift and never really settling down, she, like, seemed to gain entry or more importantly, wanted to do so, into places where, you know, the titled and the rich made themselves at home. Kind of that aesthete lifestyle of, like, wanting to be around mm-hmm. the rich and famous. Like, I want to be around the people who are doing things and know things and talking about things. Yeah. According to Schenker, Dolly loved to walk on the wild side. <laughs> but her yearnings, <laughs> also another joke because of her middle name, yeah. But her yearnings were always romantic and just slightly to the left of bourgeois. What she really thought she wanted was an orderly home life, a regulated social set and drawing rooms full of lovely gentlemen and learned ladies with whom she could flirt and jest and talk about literature. Goals. Absolutely. I would
0: also like this. Yes, please. please. Thank you. This sounds, this sounds great. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, a fellow writer... Juna Barnes, who is part of the, you know, expatriate social circle that included Hemingway, which we'll talk a little bit about later, turned Dolly into a character in her work called The Lady's Almanac, which is an obscure novel celebrating the lesbian cult of Natalie Clifford Barney, and I need to have this book in my life. Mm -hmm. The character was named Doll Furious.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And Dolly (laughs) got jealous of Juna and said... Why should you be the one with genius? If anyone has it, it should be me.
0: Yeah, she was really, like, frustrated with the fact that she didn't really like Shuna a lot because they battled for attention. You know, battled for Natalie Barney's very distracting attention. But she was also, like, jealous of her that she was an accomplished writer. But also, like, Dolly never actually did anything. Nope. So kind of, like, early in Oscar's life when everybody's like, God, let's let's talk about this guy Oscar Wilde. He's such a genius. He's such a brilliance. He's, wow. He's such a great conversationalist. But, like, also, what has he actually done to make him famous? Yep. (laughs) Like, he hadn't, like, actually done anything. People were just talking about him because he, like, looked and dressed and talked funny and right this this is like 1800s and 1900s equivalents of the kardashians yeah but like, like they're just famous because they're famous until like oscar actually started right writing i mean stuff. he actually <laughs> ended up capitalizing
1: on his you know wit and intelligence yeah. but like when he went on his north american tour he he'd written like one book of poetry that like people yeah. had like mixed reactions to like some people loved it and some people were like meh I don't know why it's such a big deal, but, like, he had a speaking tour for a year in America because... (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: Like, who is this guy? Who is this guy? So, yeah, speaking of it, like, her uncle Dolly was considered to be a very gifted storyteller. Days after her birth, her grandmother Jane declared her magnificent and described her as a force of intellect and power. I don't know how you know that about a baby, but there you go. (laughs) Dolly, uh, she assured her daughter-in-law Constance, would most certainly write books. However... Dolly uh, did not write books. Dolly didn't write really much other than some letters. Yeah, Her wit and intelligence were said to be more ephemeral and in the moment rather than lasting. Like,
0: she's known for having a lot of very pithy sayings and, like, quips and... And, like, for what everybody else said about her and her presence. Right. Like, people said that she was, like, almost mystical. Yeah. And I think, like, the as I was reading about Dolly, I got this really strong impression that,
1: like... It seems like the specter of her uncle's genius, like, placed such a heavy burden of expectation Mm. on her. Which, like, to my mind, like, might actually explain why she never wrote anything of her own. Either because she actually lacked the writing talent that he had. Like, she might have been very gifted verbally and very quick on her feet, but not necessarily have the gift for writing. And didn't ever want to expose it. Or just that she might have had the talent, but, like, feared not being able to live up to the expectations. It was much easier to just... Mm -hmm. Not do anything about it, then, you know, kind of either ruin her uncle's legacy or not be able to live up to it. And just kind of, like, no wonder she had so many mental health issues and depression. I mean, like, not to mention it ran in the family, but also just how sucky must it have been to be, to look so much like like your uncle?
0: Yeah, and such big shoes to fill. Yes. Too. Especially when you were, like, born in the era of his fall from grace too you know now everybody's like looking back on him as this genius and everything but like she was literally born and growing up in a period of time where everybody was just like this guy had all of this brilliance and he threw it away because of his indecency and her entire family was ruined because of it right right and then add what yep
1: It's a lot. And then, you know, throw in Mm -hmm. the fact that she, like I said, she looked so much like him. One of the articles that we'll link in our show notes is called When Dolly Met Zelda Fitzgerald, which uh, we will get to When Dolly Met Zelda Fitzgerald. Oh, yeah. Says that though Dolly never met her famous uncle, her pale, elongated face, remarkable blue-gray eyes, shock of dark hair and affected pose... Carded him up for all who met her. She inherited, too, his clear, low, musical voice, insatiable appetite for cigarettes, and inability to regulate her chaotic finances. She apparently told everyone she was Oscar reincarnated, and when her friends nicknamed her Oscaria, she said, quote, I am more like Oscar than Oscar. <laughs> God. um <sighs> her friend lady una truebridge once described her as quote the better man compared to her uncle oscar in her letter from paris column in july 1930 janet flanner who we will get to the paris correspondent of the new yorker described dolly attending a mask dressed as oscar as quote looking both important and earnest which is such a delightful
0: pun it really is it's so great <gasps> oh yeah
1: i love you janet flanner Uh, i love you
0: yeah
1: oh god uh when hg wells bumped into her i mean i i read that so casually as if it's a normal thing to bump into hg wells hg Wells just randomly bumped into her at a paris club declared himself quote delighted to at last meet a feminine wild unquote
0: yeah i i really liked this one i mean like we said right most of what we know about dolly is from people bumping into her or meeting her and just being so enthralled with her immediately so cecil beaton upon meeting her originally criticized her for her fashion choices very much like walter pater did to oscar upon meeting him saying that she wore quote vitriolic purple and quote reclined like a decadent roman oh my god i love her (laughs) her quote oyster face which yeah just uh i'm just gonna put a pin in that unintentional pun uh that it was plastered with powder but that when she spoke he became supremely impressed with her that like oscar's wit was just kind of oozing out of her he said that dolly never expecting that she might have inherited her uncle's wit continually managed to say clever funny things as if by a fluke oh
1: i love that yeah. she wore vitriolic purple and reclined like a decadent roman entress. like oh my god right i love you
0: and that somebody described her with an oyster face. Which, I mean, just thinking of the Virginia Woolf, more true <laughs> than he knew. More yes, true indeed. than he knew. Or
1: maybe he did yeah. know and he was saying
0: it on purpose. You never yes. know. <laughs> never know. So yeah, she was also obsessed with literature. Specifically with Byron, Bettina Bergery said that Dolly's, quote, real backbone was Byron and that she felt her parentage with him. She often emulated his romantic behavior and, like, the chaotic elements of his poetry, and she always aspired to live as close to literary inspiration as she could. Whenever she, like, dispensed advice, it was always couched in, like, literary references Mm. and... So if she couldn't write a book, she was determined to essentially live one. She was once quoted as saying, good literature is really my favorite drug of all. Write that on my tombstone. Not that I do drugs, but
1: like, absolutely.
0: Yeah. And like, in terms of Dolly's writing or lack thereof, she did some translations and she dabbled like a tiny, tiny little bit in poetry. But, you know, like you were surmising, Gretchen, she really, she was worried that she really didn't have a knack for it and so she kind of stopped so Mm. really most of what we have left of her actual writing is some translations a short travel diary which is is so funny because the nature of her writing is like she could write about what she did that day in really really short things and then spend like an entire three pages talking about the hair on this woman (laughs) or man's head across from her at a lunch or something like that like what she focused on was really crazy like Read the book, guys. There's a lot of interesting stuff in here that we can never fit in. But she was very deliberate about not leaving behind much trace of her life, other than the hundreds of letters that she sent to people. And so her lover, Natalie Barney, was determined to essentially immortalize her after her death. Which brings us
1: to the end of life and death. As the 1930s went on, Dolly struggled more and more with her addictions and mental health and continually isolated herself. In 1939, at the age of 44, she was diagnosed with breast cancer and sought alternative treatments rather than surgery. Kind of refusing to accept her diagnosis, she went bathing in Lourdes and declared her quote, troublesome cysts to be shrunken. How you'd know that? Denial. Right? Like, sure. In 1940, when the Germans were approaching Paris, she fled back to England. And in April of 1941, she died of indeterminate causes, likely either from the cancer itself or a... Drug overdose, we're not entirely certain. She had attempted suicide four times previously, and one was nearly successful. So, I mean, she could have potentially overdosed. They're just not entirely sure. This is my favorite quote about her death. Her lover, Natalie Barney, said, Just as no one's presence could be as present as hers, so no one's absence Mm. could be so absent. Um, Which is just like, what a beautiful way and sad. But like, beautiful way to put that. Another friend, Victor Cunard, diplomat and Times correspondent in Venice, stated that Dolly carried on with undiminished wit the family tradition of conversational brilliance and concluded, epigram and paradox are the weapons of the Wild family, and none of its members has used them more humanely nor more effectively than Dorothy. That was after her death.
0: Yeah, so... Like I mentioned before, we'll get into the the nature of Natalie, Barney, and Dolly's relationship, but despite the fact that it could be relatively tempestuous, Natalie truly loved Dolly, and on the third anniversary of her death, she actually wrote to, you know, she continued up writing to Honey Harris, Dolly's friend, and said, My thoughts have gone out in search of your thoughts all these months, and especially during April's. April is the cruelest one. Mm. As since April 1941, when we left off living for the doubtful pleasure of surviving. Mm. Wow! Like, yeah, like how completely devastated and affected she was by the death of Dolly. So she was absolutely determined to save Dolly from herself. And mm. she wasn't able to do it in life, but she could, in a way, do it in her death. She wanted to rescue her for posterity. Which Dolly certainly made Natalie have her work cut out for her. She was like constantly destroying telegrams and letters and notes and trying to erase her history... But Natalie succeeded and privately published a book in 1951 called In Memory of Dorothy Wild Oscaria*, And she paid for the publication using some of the money from Dolly's estate. And in it, Dolly is presented through the remembrances of 12 of her fervent friends and casual acquaintances. And it also includes many of her letters to her friends and lovers. And that actually is privately published. Like, you have to go to like a very private library archive in paris to go and read that which joan Schenker did and a lot of what we get from this book is through oddly enough interviews with natalie barney's like housekeeper yes like at like 97 years old but like tell me about dolly wilde please (laughs) that's great
1: uh so that brings us to why do we think they're gay? And the answer is, Gosh. she dated Gosh, a know. lot of ladies. <laughs> like, yeah, a lot. Ooh, so, so this is the part of the episode where we talk about groups of queer women who have all dated each other. And that this idea of, like, I've dated all of the queer women that I know in my town apparently goes all the way back to, like, the early 1900s. Like, this has <laughs> yeah. been a thing for a really long time, guys.
0: And it's, like, it's, like, mainly centered around one woman whose name is Natalie Clifford Barney. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
1: We'll do a whole episode on her.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we're going to get to her uh, at the end of this list, but we wanted to leave, I guess, the best and most lurid till last. (laughs) Right. So this is kind of
1: our list of, I mean, it's not complete by any means. This was significant. 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 So I want to talk about... Okay, this is going to be... She's my wife oh, of love, the week. I've claimed her. She's
0: my favorite, too. Oh, love we her. love
1: her. Her name is Marion Jo Carstairs. So, Dolly met Jo in either 1917 or 18. It's not entirely clear. And she was a fellow ambulance driver. So, Jo was born in 1900 in England. She was the daughter of Frances Evelyn Bostwick, the American heiress of the original trustee of Standard Oil, making Joe herself the heir once her mother died. Though, uh, Joe didn't really get along with her mother, who was into a lot of drugs and alcohol, so I find it rather interesting that she had, that she had an affair with Dolly, but,
0: you know. Yeah. C- can I read the quote that Schenker describes Joe as just, I, like, I can't, I can't let go the... Oh, sure! I can't let go by the description of her as, uh, the standard oil heiress with cultivated muscles, a boy's haircut, and later startlingly tattooed arms. And that she grew up to become a notorious seducer of women, counting Marlene Dietrich, for whom she provisionally purchased an island among her conquests. I just, like, I just really like the, like, boy's haircut and cultivated muscles. Because I am a... Giant homosexual, and this is like just butch icon. Yep,
1: Yeah. There will be a photo of Joe. I found this really great photo of Joe holding her little doll, like holding <laughs> yes. her favorite little doll. And she's got, she's like, she has like my haircut. She has like the butch haircut. the like shaved side swoop thing. And she's got tattoos, and like a, it's great, it's fabulous. What? Yo, a photo. we're gonna do
0: separate episodes on like all of these people because we just can't contain ourselves.
1: Yep. Joe admired her grandmother Nellie, for being rough, tough, and wanting her own way. Joe herself was known as the fastest woman on water. To <laughs> deal with that, what you will. Was rich, dashing, <laughs> a speedboat champion, and an adventurer who had her own island. As Joe herself said, quote, "I was never a little girl. I came out of the womb queer."
0: Mood. I love you. Uh,
1: she convinced her grandmother to let her join the Red Cross at sixteen. And at 17, had moved to Paris and encountered the Bohemian set, which is where she met and became infatuated with Dolly. Joe described her sex with Dolly this way. Quote, my God, what a marvelous thing. I found it a great pity I'd waited so long. Girl. Ugh. She said she found Dolly <laughs> so almost mystical way. and years later referred to Dolly as one of the four women who changed her life. Okay, this lady had so many girlfriends. She had an album with like 120 or more photos of her girlfriends. This looked, <laughs> I mean, seriously, everything about Joe is just delightful. Her mother was super scandalized by all of her girlfriends and threatened to cut her off if she didn't get married. So, Joe married her childhood friend, the French Count Jacques de Pret on January 7th of 1918, but they basically just, like, were beards for each other and did their own thing.
0: I mean, if you're gonna marry a beard, it might as well be, like, royalty. I guess. It might as well be a cow,
1: Right? And then, Gosh. after Joe's mother died, which wasn't all that long after, they annulled their marriage on the grounds of non-consummation, and Joe <laughs> now had, like, a shit ton of money, which is just, like... Uh, I mean, that's you go. that's a good way to do it. Seriously. She set up a fleet of uh, Daimler cars and started a chauffeur company run by all women called X Garage, which she did with the help of friends and fellow ambulance drivers from the war. Like, seriously. She's Butch Sami
0: Sato. Yeah. She's Butch Sami Sato. Oh my gosh,
1: she absolutely oh is. Oh my
0: gosh. Because she's
1: like an heiress and she has all the money. She's and... an heiress.
0: Standard oil, oh the automobiles. and <sighs>
1: uh, She really is.
0: Y'all, this episode might be too much for me and Gretchen. It's
1: i think our brains might short after a while so after her grandmother died she had even more money so she uh (laughs) built a bunch of fast boats and started racing because why not she won a bunch of like trophies and things but then when she failed to win this one specific trophy called the harmsworth british international trophy she retired and moved to whale Cay, which is an island in the bahamas that she bought and, like, she entertained a bunch of famous movie stars, and even, like, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. And that was when she had, like, you know, she had an affair with Marlene Dietrich, which, you know, you guys will remember from our Stars of a Bygone Era episode. In 1975, she sold Whale K and moved to Miami. Although she still... <laughs> Why
0: would you, like, sell your own island to move to Florida?
1: To Miami. Like, God. <laughs> like, retire on your... Like, die on your own island.
0: Retire... Right
1: Although she still had plenty of lovers as she aged, she preferred the company of a doll she called Lord Todd Wadley. (laughs) I
0: love her so much. Which she had
1: this like little like sailor looking suit and like Italian slippers and she died in 1993. She died in 1993. I was alive when she was alive. God damn (laughs) it. Oh God. Um, Same. Like, but when she died, she had her ashes and those of her doll like cremated and buried together.
0: What a weird, awesome lady! <laughs> I love God. Joe Carstairs. Oh man, I be I want to be like that is like senior citizen goals. <laughs> I want to be, I want to be Joe Carstairs when I'm like ninety.
1: Oh man, she was just utterly delightful. Oh,
0: so next we have Dolly's relationship with American writer, journalist, and war correspondent Janet Flanner who wrote under the name Genet? She was born in 1892 in Indianapolis and went to University of Chicago, eventually becoming a cinema critic for the Indianapolis star. In 1918, she married William Rem, a friend she'd met at college, an artist in New York City. She admitted she married him to get out of Indianapolis, and the marriage only lasted a few years. They divorced amicably in 1926. And then in the early 1920s, she left the U.S. for Paris, and in September of 1925, she published her first letters from Paris in The New Yorker. Her letters covered a wide variety of topics, including art, performances, crime, and a lengthy write-up on two murderers, Christine and Leah. Papa. She also wrote obituaries, and her prose style came to epitomize the New Yorker style, and it still has a lasting influence to this day. Yep. Uh, she was a prominent member of the expat community, the American expat community that included Ernest Hemingway, the Fitzgeralds, John Don Passos, e. e. Cummings, Hart Crane, Judah Barnes, Ezra Pound, Gertrude Stein. She even became really great friends with Gertrude and her lover, Alice B. Toklas, who were also all connected to Natalie Barney. Yep. So Dolly and Janet met through the salon of Natalie Barney. And she also wrote favorably of Dolly throughout her lifetime. She fell in love with a Noel Haskins Murphy, a singer from a town just outside of Paris. And then during World War II, she lived in New York with Natalia Danessi Murray and her son. So all of these, all of these ladies are just so cool. I I know.
1: And they're all like (sighs) so interesting in their own unique way. And like... Yes. Powerful, interesting women. Mm-hmm. Which brings us to silent screen actress Ala Nazimova, born in mm, eighteen seven My favorite. Yeah, she's pretty great. Born in 1879 as Adelaide Yakovlevna Leventon, she grew up in Crimea. In 1905, she emigrated to the U.S. and starred on Broadway, where she first gained critical success. She was one of the biggest stars of the era and even had a theater named after her. Her introduction to Hollywood came when she starred in a 35-minute silent film version of the play War Brides. She became a pretty strong voice for women and feminism after starring in the film and soon became writing and starring in her own movies. She bought a house on Sunset Boulevard and threw wild Gatsby-esque parties at her estate known as the Garden of Allah. And partook in a lavender marriage. Okay, this is such a delight, like, I, <laughs> so we cannot make these sh- this shit up, people. She partook in a lavender marriage, which we talked about in Stars from a Bygone Era, with actor and director Charles Bryant in December of 1912, though the marriage was never consummated. So, interesting tangent. Bryant later married Marjorie Gilhooley in 1925, and an investigation led to the discovery that he had listed his marital status as single when he applied to marry Marjorie, <laughs> which is what led to the revelation that his marriage to Nazimova had been his sham from the beginning. And it was this huge public scandal that actually damaged Nazimova's career, and Bryant eventually divorced Marjorie in 1936. It's just like... He married one lady, they never consummated it, and then, like, ten years later, he's like, I'm (laughs) gonna marry this other woman, but, like, he was technically... Still married. Still married. Good lord. <laughs> yeah. She also coined the term sewing circle, which brings us
0: to our word of the week. Word of the yes. week. Yes. Word of the week. Uh, so yeah, so this phrase is used to describe the underground, closeted, lesbian, and bisexual film actresses and their relationships in Hollywood in the United States, particularly during Hollywood's golden age from the 1910s to the 1950s. It was coined by Allah, but was famously associated with Marlena Dietrich, again, our fave, who were referred to her male lovers as her alumni <sighs> association. God, I love her. I love Marlena Dietrich. Like, I'm too so gay. Much. I'm too gay for this episode. <laughs> so, yeah, so remember all those people that we mentioned, like sleeping with each other in Hollywood? Like Tallulah Bankhead, Katherine Hepburn, Joan Crawford, Greta Garbo, Barbara Stanwyck, Isadora Duncan, Myrna Loy, Agnes Moorhead, Mercedes de Acosta. Oh, boy, Mercedes oh de Acosta. Oh, my gosh. I think she slept. I think she's got the longest list. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, as far as, like, Frida Kahlo. Yeah, yeah, very long list. <laughs> like, Went to Mexico. Well, Mexico came to her. <laughs> Frida Kahlo came to Hollywood and was like, hello, I'm going to sleep with all of you. Um, yeah, they so they like, pretty much all had relationships with each other or had dated someone who had dated someone. I mean, this is like, if anybody's watched The L Word, it was the chart. Yeah. Um, and it, the same thing was going on in Paris. We've got a couple like, of
1: charts. We've got, like, one for... Like the Hollywood set, and then like you found one right that's for like the Paris salon set, and yes. they like overlap yeah. all at of, multiple all of these points. Things.
0: Yes, all of these <laughs> these women kind of surrounding like Natalie Barney, and then kind of on a little like tangent of um, Sylvia Beach and her bookstore, and all of these were like known as the Left Bank lesbians. All of these women that we've basically been talking about. So yeah, it's I mean like Otto Straddle literally has a chart. That we're gonna include in our show notes. We will be doing probably several episodes on the sewing circle because it's a how lot. Can you not, yeah.
1: <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> yeah they, like, they like met at one another's houses for lunch conversation and possibilities the sewing circle sometimes met at the house of dolores del rio then married to cedric gibbons the mgm art director so this is just one of those tidbits we wanted to throw in del rio is pretty much forgotten now but uh, apparently her great beauty sent orson welles and eric maria remarque both of whom her lovers into near paroxysms of <laughs> praise so just all of these ladies Lesbians,
0: bisexuals, yeah. just yeah. enjoying well, each and, other. And, uh, and if you don't know the name, Eric Maria Remarque, uh, he is the author of All Quiet on the Western Front, which was like the notorious like anti-war narrative from World War II. But yeah, back to Ala. So as well as Dolly, she also had relationships with Eva LaGallien, again, Mercedes de Acosta, and Dorothy Asner. And as she aged and her career started to wane, she grew bolder about proclaiming her sexuality and her films became edgier. She and Dolly actually met and had their relationship and ended their relationship in, I think it was 1925. It was like a quick flame that lasted like a year. And uh, what was super, super interesting is that Allah actually wrote, produced, and starred in her own film version of Salome. Again, connecting everybody back to Wilde and this was like one of the first American art films and it drew heavily from the illustrations for Oscar's book uh, done by Aubrey Beardsley and it was said to have basically had an all-gay cast and it was critically panned and a commercial failure at the time but became a film festival favorite for years afterwards right I
1: just kind of love that she basically required
0: everyone involved
1: everyone on screen to be gay it was like no all of you must be gay that's the only way this movie's getting
0: made it's the only media I ever want to watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so she she lost a lot of money because it was kind of a failure. She sold her house to a company that turned it into a hotel. And then she died of coronary thrombosis at the age of 66 in a room of the hotel that had once been her home. Yeah.
1: Which is really sad. Um, yeah. And that brings us to Zelda Fitzgerald. This is great. A.K.A. wife.
0: Wife of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Of- Speaking of Gatsby and things. Right.
1: Oh, man. <laughs> so... Dolly, we mentioned emergency seductions earlier, so Dolly specialized in these. And apparently this happened to be one night when she made a pass at Zelda at a party. F. Scott captured the scene unflatteringly, surprise, surprise, in a scene in his novel Tender is the Night, which memorialized Dolly as the lesbian seductress Vivian Taub. So this scene was actually cut from the final published manuscript. However, we do have the excerpt of what was deleted. You can still find it. And so we're going to read this for you. An hour later, he came out of somewhere to a taxi, whether they had preceded him and found Wanda limp and drunk in Miss Taub's arm. What's the idea? He demanded furiously. Miss Taub smiled at him. Wanda opened her eyes sleepily and said, hello. What's all this business? He repeated. I love Wanda, said Miss Taub. Vivian is a nice girl, said Wanda. Come sit here with us. Why can't you get out of the taxicab and go home with your friends, said Frances harshly to Miss Taub. You know you have no business to do this. She's tight. I love Wanda, repeated Miss Taub good-naturedly. I don't care. Please get out. In answer, Wanda threw, drew the girl close to her again, whereupon, in a spasm of fury, Francis opened the door, took her by the arm, and before the girl understood his purpose, deposited her in a sitting position on the curb. "'This is perfectly outrageous,' she cried. "'I should say it is,' he agreed, his voice trembling. A cheshire and several bystanders hurried up. Francis spoke to the driver and got into the cab quickly. The incident had wakened Wanda. "'Why did you do that?' she demanded. I'll just I'll have to go back. Do you realize what she was doing? Vivian's a nice girl. Vivian's a just dashes. That's all wait that's
0: all that's all she wrote. That's all she wrote. That's all we've got. (laughs) Yeah, I love that, like, Dolly has this penchant for just, like, showing up in people's writing, right? Like, she shows up in this. (laughs) She she also, I mean, tangentially, but, like, mostly around Natalie Barney's whole crew, but, like, they all showed up in Radcliffe Hall's The Well of Loneliness as well. Just all of these people were more characters from a book than they were real people. Yeah. But they were real people. Like, no wonder we always slip up when we talk about people on this show. And we're like, oh, yeah, well, we're going to talk about these characters. I mean, real people from history. Because <laughs> like, they all live ridiculous lives. It's great. They've... Like, nobody just sits in their house and watches Netflix. We get all of this amazing stuff. I know. It's great.
1: Yep. I just I, love I just love that she made a pass at Zelda and that F. Scott didn't like
0: it. Like, right. fuck
1: you, F. Scott. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of F. Scott.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure that, I think, I'm pretty sure, if I'm remembering correctly, like, Oscar had tried to make a pass at F. Scott at one point as well.
1: So, like, Oscar made (laughs) a pass (laughs) at at F. Scott and Dolly made a pass at Zelda. (laughs) (laughs) Just those wilds can't resist the picture. I
0: guess they both have, they both have similar tastes. I guess. I guess for... (laughs) <laughs> they just kind of, like, double teamed this married couple. <laughs> okay, but what if that had happened in real life, though? What if you have, oh, like, God. uncle and niece, like... <laughs> the true bonding adventure. <laughs> if Oscar and Dolly had ever oh. actually met. Oh, they could be such beautiful wing people. For oh each my other. gosh, they really would be. They really could have. Oh, uh, Alright. Okay, the last one before we get to the biggin. We have cellist, singer, and actor Gwen Farrer. She was born in 1899 and trained as a cellist. She became famous after World War I in partnership with Nora Blaney, doing variety shows and cabarets in London, and she acted in many plays and three films as well, and when her father died, she became independently wealthy, and she was great friends with a whole bunch of people, including British lesbian poet Radcliffe Hall, our favorite Butch Asami Sato, Joe Carstairs, and that whole set, and she has been romantically linked with actor Tallulah Bankhead, as well as... Jolly wild. Big surprise uh, that we decides... see these like repeated names coming Gosh, up. It's, wow, <laughs> God, I wonder what they could have all been doing with each other. <laughs>
1: just big sewing. They were sewing. So,
0: they were sewing and making daisy chains together, which is also like another word for the whole sewing circle area. The whole sewing circle thing. They also called it the game of Daisy Chain. To see if they could just try to link each other. They were
1: they were working by they were who
0: d- each person was sleeping with. Keeping their hands busy. Oh God. <laughs> um <laughs> uh, so so uh, gwen described dolly as a jolly and high-spirited woman with many friends and gwen died after a brief illness in december of 1944 right all I- right that brings us oh the
1: big one natalie clifford that barney that brings us <laughs>
0: <sighs> yes
1: who yeah <sighs> okay. we we only have Start time to folks. like this will be like, this is really like super brief but we will do, yeah, we will or, come back to her.
0: So, this is Dolly's longest relationship from June 1927 until her death. And this was with the love of her life, lesbian American expatriate writer Natalie Clifford Barney, the host of the best known literary salons in Paris of the 20th century. So, she's an expatriate and she was two decades Dolly's senior. So she liked him a lot older, uh, and she had a self-professed obsession with Oscar. Yep. She was born in uh, October 1876 in Dayton, Ohio. And question: do you want to tell us a little oh. bit more about okay, so, her influences? Yeah, her influences
1: were both Oscar and her mother, the painter Alice Pike Barney. Okay, so, side note, I promise you this relates. I was setting up my YouTube channel... And I was looking for photo, like for images of Medusa that were, um, creative commons. So commonly available. Yeah. So I, I found public domain. Public domain. Yes. I was like, it? I know there's a word. <laughs> yeah. So I was looking for public domain art of Medusa and I found this gorgeous, like, quasi impressionist like painting of Medusa in like blues and greens and purples, which are my favorites, done by this painter uh named Alice Pike Barney. So I started looking up at Alice Pike Barney's and if you go to either my website or my YouTube channel, all of my like featured images and art for like headings of things are Alice Pike Barney. And guess what? Guess what? It's, it's not a freaking mom. mom.
0: Like <laughs> It all comes back to the Ouroboros of Gay. Oh my gosh. Like I, Everything. I, everything in your lives from now on will always filter back to Natalie Clifford Barney. Right, which, uh, which then connects to Dolly Wilde and Oscar Wilde, and it's just like... We're not going to be able to get away from making an Ouroboros of Gay shirt.
1: No, we have to. Are we? No. We have to. No. We have to. Absolutely uh, agree. So
0: yeah, so she was obsessed with Oscar because she met Oscar when she was six years old. She was holidaying, or if you're Natalie Clifford Barney, Holly gang um, <laughs> with her mother. And he was actually on his American tour at the time, giving a lecture in Long Beach, New York. And she was at the time being like chased by really, like she's like six years old and she's being chased by these like terrible taunting boys. And she runs into Oscar and he scooped her up and then comforted, like sat her down on his knee and comforted her by telling her a story. I know. Oh. I know, like,
1: when she was 10, she insisted on being painted as Oscar's happy prince. And we'll include yeah. that, like, on our show notes as this adorable yeah. painting. And she, like, wrote a letter to him while he was in writing prison and served on boards that commemorated his life and death. Um, as an adult, she had a fling with the poet Olive Custance, who was Oscar's one-time rival for the affections
0: of poet John Gray. Right? Yeah, Olive, after the, like, after the trial and, and incarceration mm-hmm. of Oscar, Olive then married Lord Alfred Douglas. Yep, yep. And, <laughs> and, and like,
1: through Olive, like, Natalie, like, befriended Lord Alfred Douglas. Like, oh my gosh. Like,
0: it's just, it's just all over the place. It's just ridiculous. Uh, so, yeah, so we're, I mean, we don't have a huge <laughs> amount of time left, so... We're going to get into Natalie Barney in detail when we do an entire episode on her, because we will have to do an entire episode on her and her entire set. Oh my gosh. But as a brief rundown, her salon, which was held at 20 Rue Jacob, was, quote, the longest running and most unusual salon in all of Europe, a place where lesbian assignations and appointments with academicians could exist in a kind of cheerful, cross-pollinating cognitive dissonance. Due as much to Natalie's brilliant social sense, developed intellectual interests, and lion-hunting tendencies. (sighs) Uh, Her openly lesbian sexual tastes put her outside the pale of society, yet she established a distinct community of her own, into which the very people who initially excluded her wanted, in the end, to be invited. She wrote, I left society before it left me. I mean, that's goals.
1: How baller is that? Y'all don't like me? I'm gonna create, like, the coolest party in town, and you're gonna beg me to get in. And I'm gonna say no.
0: Exactly! Yes! Ugh, I love her. Yeah, um, Truman Capote once described, Nat- yes, Truman Capote once described Natalie Salon as, quote, the all-time ultimate gallery of all the famous dykes from 1880 to 1935, or thereabouts. I wanna be Natalie Barney when I grow up.
1: That'd be great. Yeah. So, uh, Claude Mariac once referred to her as the Pope of Lesbos, <laughs> and Dolly dubbed the community of friends and lovers that surrounded them the Knights of Natalie's Round Table. Everything was like,
0: every, I, I was I was reading this book and I was like, I don't know how we're going to do this episode on Dolly because like half of this epi- like half of all of the information on Dolly is just Natalie. How are we going to do this episode without it just being a Natalie Barney and Friends episode? So we're gonna do. A Natalie Barney and Friends episode, but for now let's focus on uh, let's focus on the relationship. And we need between to call Natalie it that because and Barney Dali. and Friends. We need oh, to call it Natalie Barney and Friends. All right, folks. When we eventually get to that, remind us of that on Twitter, please, because we have the memories of goldfish. I'm writing this unless, down, unless of course, yeah, unless Gretchen is writing it down. <laughs> All right. So their relationship. So they met. In June 1927, at one of Barney, Barney's salon parties, and fell in love, their relationship was passionate, but also really dramatic and painful, as Dolly was always battling for Natalie's attention, which was, as we have surmised, divided among the many other women that she was seeing. And Natalie frequently found herself at odds, especially with Natalie's primary lover, other than Dolly, Romaine Brooks, who was uh, another painter at the time. And so when Romaine called, Natalie dropped who or whatever else and went to her. And Dolly was consistently pushed aside, something that she bristled at in several letters. (laughs) Like, I know we're going to move on to this, but Schenker actually said that, that Natalie was known to have three was her favorite number. She wanted kind of always to be having three affairs at any one time. So this is the kind of, like very painful relationship that dolly found herself in and i mean as somebody with abandonment issues mm. oh honey like yeah mm. yeah natalie said that she was uh, so lazy that she never revoked a friendship once she made it and usually didn't relinquish a relationship once sexual connections were over which made her a dangerously overextended lover she once said to Dolly, she quote, preferred her body to her thoughts, which is really kind of shitty. Cause she was just kind of like superly focused on sex and she would like complain that her other lovers were more interested in like monomot versus korakor Like, God, can we just stop talking for a while and have more sex? <laughs>
1: Which has got to be really hard for Dolly, because, like, she so much traded on being, like, witty and
0: intelligent and interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Their relationship constantly had ups and downs, and Dolly consistently had conflicting and extreme feelings. Like, in one moment, Natalie was the queen of her heart, and in the next, she was, like, stabbed through by her unfaithfulness. In one of her letters, she writes... It was more than kind of you to leave me so many things, just when I needed, though the pretty little watch was extravagant of you. (laughs) I could have wished your kindness to have gone even further and not left evidences of your other love in the book by my bed, amongst the writing paper, etc. Horrid stabs, unnecessary hurt. Paris pours endless stories into my ears, but acceptance of the rhythm of destiny becomes easier and easier. And like a ghost, I feel I have no hands to struggle, no voice to lift up, no heart to break. Mm. So while they were constantly up and down, though, like they did have a pretty supportive relationship with one another. Yeah.
1: Natalie actually installed Dolly in her blue bedroom at the 20 Rue Jacob, where she hosted her salon. And Natalie was one of the primary caretakers of Dolly, and along with Tancred, Berenius, Honey Harris, and other friends consistently was bailing Dolly out of money troubles and paying for slash putting her up in her detox environments. While Natalie was constantly push-pulling with Dolly, Dolly could also give as good as she got, uh, dangling her other attractions in front of Natalie in her own letters, and she would drive Natalie into worrying fits when she would go into isolation mode and when she was self medicating. Again, this reminds me of like Virginia Wolf and It was very Vita. similar.
0: Yeah, there was um there were like several instances where Dolly would kind of isolate herself and just not respond to any sort of letters. And then when Natalie came running, that she'd be like, Oh, you don't need to stay, it's fine and she would put up all these defenses because she was just trying to get natalie to like come running for her mm. so and there were times where natalie was like really strict about the money that she was lending her but she was also like the first person to run to her side so they they definitely had a very ups and downs thing which also speaking of virginia wolf we do not have time to go into it today but we will put on our on our website and our show notes dolly's description. Of Virginia Woolf and the time that she got to have lunch with her, and it is out of this world. <laughs> it's crazy. She's just, like, looking at this, like, she's looking at Virginia Woolf as this, like, matriarch of lesbianism, and it's fantastic. Oh. It's, oh, it's so good. So good. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> So yeah, uh, we mentioned Romaine
1: Brooks. Romaine and Natalie began their relationship around 1915, and Brooks was Natalie's number one primary and longest lover and life partner. Like we've said, we will talk in detail about the relationship between Romaine and Natalie in another episode, but let's focus for now on Dolly and Romaine's relationship to each other, which was complicated, as you can imagine. Dolly initially hated Romaine and always felt some level of resentment toward her for her place as Natalie's most important, but she very quickly appreciated Romaine's artistry, beauty, and even actually began to respect her. She even developed a bit of a crush on her, even sending her little messages through her letters to Natalie. Things like, remember me to Romaine and tell her I often envy her flight from life and think she has the better exchange, or... This is to convey my love to Romaine. Dear Romaine, what a lovely name. I should use it all the time if I was in love with her thus. Romaine, do you love me, Romaine? And so on. Mm. Mm.
0: If I <laughs> like, was like, in love little, with her. Like, it's like such a cute little schoolgirl crush. And she's sending these in, like, her letters to her lover's... Lover. Into her lover. About her lover's lover. She'd be like, hey, lady I'm sleeping with, can you tell your other lover how much I think she's pretty and lovely and wonderful? <laughs> I don't want to tell her, but you tell her while you two are in bed. Also, I kind of hate you for the fact that you guys are always in bed together. Never mind. It's fine. It's fine. That's like... (laughs) It's like like emotional whiplash.
1: Like, and Romaine would have lunch (laughs) with Dolly and send her money, clothes, advice, but also experienced her own bouts of jealousy, insisting that Natalie banish her from 20 Rue Jacob and telling Natalie to, quote, shake this rat from out of your skirts. Like, come on, ladies. Like also,
0: ladies all get all over again. Also, maybe get a room. Yeah. <clears throat> that might. Shake this rat from out of your skirts. That is so mean, Romaine. So mean. She was very blunt.
1: Uh, so Natalie also had affairs with, as mentioned, where you're going to recognize some of these names again. Olive Custance, Colette of recent film adaptation fame, played by Keira Knightley, Juna Barnes, Renée Vivienne, and Lucy Delarue Madrus. Who said of Natalie, my joy and my pain, my death and my life, my blonde bitch.
0: <laughs> it's just, I had to stick that in there because it's so good. It
1: is so good.
0: Uh, all right, folks. So we just wanted to throw in as like the very last cherry on top. Some of the choice quotes, or sections of letters from Dolly Wilde. So we'll just kind of alternate. So in a letter to Natalie, which shows Like, her extraness, even when it came down to the look of her letters. What has been your mood lately? Too tired and busy even to be unfaithful to me? I am a darting trout, shifting, glancing, and flashing iridescent tail in a hundred pleasant pools. What a horrid pen, so thick and insensitive, it's taking away even the frivolity of this handwriting. Dearest, all serious thoughts lie under this layer of white, lacy paper. (laughs) (laughs) there's an entire chapter in this book about, like, actually the way that Dolly wrote, and, like, her handwriting, and the pens that she liked, and the type of paper that she liked. She also, like, borrowed paper and stationery and pens from all of her friends and refused to go out and, like, buy her own.
1: Does not surprise me. Yeah. So, on her attitude toward living in the moment and her conception of time and reality, she said... "'The dead level of reality is flat and terrifying. "'I always stole in on imagination and disturbed my heart. "'I don't see why people sing. "'There's no place like home. "'Every place is like home. "'What I should sing is, there's no place like bed. "'Girl, absolutely.'"
0: "'Your letters are like lovemaking. "'Continue to assuage me. "'I come to you thrilled and full of love. "'Meet me how you like. "'Oh, but love me. "'Love me, darling.'" Like, her favorite thing to use in letters was the exclamation point.
1: Uh, In another letter, early in her relationship with Natalie Barney, I've been asleep all this golden afternoon, and now it's tea time, and life is a dreamy, yawning affair full of stillness and quiet. I am all alone in an enchanting room with yesterday's flowers like elegant fountains subtly playing. I confidently thought content would begin to settle in after a week, and here I am still madly in love with you. Aww.
0: Yeah. And then when separated from her, fidelity stores up passion like honey, and I am filled with all its sweets. Away from you, I have no pain, only divine, de- only divine desire, which is exquisite torture, I admit, but thrilling and wonderful. I dislike the fret of incident with you, a.k.a. her other lovers. <laughs> and then uh, one of my favorites, in a letter to Natalie... The day slips and slides into kaleidoscopic patterns and I feel outrageously content, outrageously well, outrageously well. I'm stabbed with thoughts of you, it is true, but wrapped in the petals of this gigantic flower, summer. Your paradoxical dolly.
1: Mm, that's really beautiful. Yeah.
0: yeah. Like that's that one is like my favorite for just showing how well she really did have this amazing beautiful grasp of poetic language. Yep. Yeah. And it was all just personal shit she sent to people. Yeah. And the final one. Darling, darling
1: Natalie, don't shake me off. Don't stop loving me yet. Explain my own foolishness to bring. Bring me to reason. I love you and am sad and feel full of presentment and foreboding and angry too at your intolerant acceptance of anything but classified emotions. Don't leave me, darling, ever. Reassure me. Draw me up a contract to that effect. Sign it and seal it and lock it in the strongest safe.
0: Oh Yeah. That gives you a good idea. Good idea of Dolly Wilde. And that's... That's it. That's what we've got of her. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we'd say, like, fun segment, pop culture tie-in, but it's really not a lot. I mean, I think that you can go online and find bits and pieces of the film that she was in that Lady Cara Harris made. If we can find it, we'll put it up on our website for the show notes. If it's not there, then you know that I was lying to you and that it's not available, and I pulled that from my imagination. We can also see if we can
1: find anything about Salome. I didn't look in to see if there was anything Ooh, for yes. Salome, but there might be some like maybe stills even or maybe there's, yeah. I don't know if there's any footage left from Salome.
0: Yeah. And I know that there's, like, a book by Catelyn Moran, another one of her memoirs or something, where she apparently goes into and quotes Dolly Wilde every once in a while, so. Take with that what you will. She's kind of a mixed bag with a lot of white feminism, but there's a place where you can read some more stuff that includes Dolly Wilde. Also, go see Colette. Yes. Also, I mean, like, go see Colette. It is set entirely way before colette got involved with this scene of women but it's also delightfully gay (laughs) and we will do an episode on her as well yep (laughs) because we're just gonna have to do episodes on literally every remarkably queer woman in paris so um we'll see you in 17 years (laughs) right there are so (laughs) many so many so many uh so speaking of that how gay were they? And we're going to have to, like...
1: Oh, gosh. We're going to
0: have to stop ourselves from doing ratings for everyone in this. We might just have to think, how gay is Dolly Wild? How gay is Dolly Wild? How gay is Dolly Wild? I feel like we're constantly breaking
1: our own scales, and so they're almost <laughs> meaningless. But, I mean, I feel like I have to give her, like, a, like a 20 out of 10... Fast automobiles. Mm.
0: Mm. Or maybe like
1: or maybe Joe Carster Mobiles since they don't Ooh, have yes. Sato Mobiles. So Carster Mobiles. 20 out of 10 Joe Carster Mobiles. That's that's what I'm giving Dolly. It. What about you?
0: <laughs> Gosh, it's I feel like I with the nature of this have to do it on a scale of Oscars.
1: Ooh, like, yeah. Can
0: Can Dolly Wild. Oscar, Oscar, in gayness. And, uh, God, I don't know. <laughs> um You know what? I'm going to leave that to our listeners. Mm. I'm going to leave that in to our listeners. Listeners, on a scale of Oscars, where would you put Dolly Wilde? I have no idea what the response to this would even be. Was she, like, was she more like, Oscar than Oscar? Was she more Oscar than Oscar? We'll put that up as a poll when we plop this up onto the internets. We'll... Give you some Twitter fun. Was Dolly Wilde more Oscar than Oscar Wilde himself? Uh, but if I'm going to give an actual number, let's say let's say 20 out of 10 darting trouts. Ooh. That's the weirdest way to describe yourself i have ever heard.
1: That is. Darting
0: trout. Darting trouts with oyster I mean, faces? Darting <laughs> trouts with oyster face. Oh, Cecil, you have no <laughs> idea. Oh, or man. you did. I mean, she didn't exactly hide it. So anyway, almost two hours in. Uh, and we said we it. thought this was going to be a short episode. Wah, wah. We say it every time. You said that. I, I never said that. <laughs> you started this outline and I finished it and I knew that we were not going to go short because I kind of fell in love again. Oops, everybody. Uh, I fall
1: in love just a little more. <laughs> a
0: little bit every day with someone new. <laughs> so that's it for today's episode. Today's very giggly episode. Oh my gosh. Um, You can find us online individually. Gretchen, where might our listeners reach out to you upon the net of (laughs) inters? Well, when I am not sewing with the Hollywood
1: (laughs) Sapphists, I am writing nerdy media analysis and fangirling over Star Wars, A Song of Ice and Fire, and queer books for thefandamentals.com and my personal website, gnellis.com. Or you can find me on Tumblr and Twitter as at GN Ellis If you're at all interested in symbolic and mythical analysis of A Song of Ice and Fire right now, I'm talking a lot about disempowered women. You can check out my YouTube channel, All the Bard. That's B-A apostrophe A-L. Like the Canaanite God, because I am a big old nerd, if you did not know that. What? Yes, I am a nerd. nerd?
0: Yep, big gay one. Big gay nerd. I know, surprising, huh? Yeah, I would never have expected any of those things that you said.
1: No, right? I mean, after talking for almost two hours about Dolly Wilde, how would you know that I'm a big old gay nerd, Lee? What you just about-
0: exude popularity? <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of the I cool mean, but kids. You actually, do. Um, what about you, Lee? Uh, so when I am not keeping my hands busy making a daisy chain of all the people I'm sleeping with, apparently in 1920s Paris. Very nice. Uh. I am talking about comics and queer TV and raging at the government over at a paradox in flux on Twitter and editing episodes and doing a whole bunch of other fun podcasty goodness stuff. Woo woo. Yeah. History History's Gay Pod <laughs> A History's Gay Podcast can be found on Tumblr
1: at History's Gay Podcast. Twitter at History is Gay Pod, and you can always drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi at history's gay Podcast at gmail.com.
0: And if you enjoy the show and want to support us in continuing to make it, you can support us on Patreon, where you can get access to Sappho Salon Minisodes, special sneak peeks, the opportunity to have your voice show up in the show in Letters and Queries episodes, which are really, really fun, and more. And you can become a Patreon supporter by going to the support section on our website. And in addition to uh, also the opportunity to just do individual donations, you can... Join the ranks of our awesome Patreon community, along with the amazing Steph Bishop, Hal Bowden, Grace Gorski, Mark Cope, and Sam Salmond. Thank you, Yay, everybody. Thank you. We couldn't yeah. do this without you. Yeah, this—it's really like making this possible. Yep. For the two folks who are basically like working full-time jobs and managing entire life, not <sighs> having to worry about things like paying for books out of our own pockets and being able to get some help with editing and things like that. Those are all things in the future that we're really, really looking forward to making this sustainable. And we love you. Yep. you can also buy really awesome merch at our history is gay store like we mentioned at the top we have an awesome new line of merch just in time for the hall of Gays, so go out and get yourself some geographic queers good good stuff Hmm.
1: and lastly remember to rate review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts it helps more people find the show and we can expand our awesome community that's it
0: for history is gay until next time stay queer and stay curious Thank you.